Hello all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, if this sounds familiar, actually me saying that, it's from the Truman Show. Um, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but something like good morning, good afternoon, good night. Um, anyways, um, I say it mostly because I don't know when you're listening or watching this, uh, but every time I say it, it reminds me a little bit of Jim Carrey. So credits to him um, for making that fantastic movie he never won an Oscar for. So today I'm very, very excited, um, mostly because I get to talk about something. I'm just going to time myself so we don't go on forever. I get to talk about something that I thought I was going to talk about. And then it turned into this other whole thing um, that I ended up wanting to talk about. So I think that's the fun part of doing the podcast is that I have a plan in mind and then um, it just it just spirals a little bit. You know, uh, I guess that's also a little bit of my teaching style, my lecturing style. Um, I will have this is why I need a PowerPoint, actually, because I will be here with you for three hours and who knows what we'll end up talking about. Um, but I need the PowerPoint to keep me on track, um, or else, you know, we'll end up in Star Trek and Lord of the Rings and all other sort of references that are very, I think, valuable when we talk about mythology, but, um, you may be here longer than you expected to be. So, um, that being said, I should actually, I want to say two things. I want to say thank you very much for everyone that's followed me recently. I'm so excited. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and these podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy the material. Um, and I hope that it's everything I want it to be, which is a bit of academic work or referencing or knowledge and a lot of fun, you know? So one of the things, I mean, I teach um, in the university classrooms, I teach a lot of what's the word static knowledge, I call it, you know, so here are the dates, here are the places, here are the names, here are this and that. One of my favorite things to do in lectures with students is to connect that to all the other aspects um, of popular culture and film and the way that we're living our lives and the way that we've been indoctrinated actually to think about myth and classics and history. And I love doing that, but I find that, of course, because we are, um, limited by the time in a classroom you don't have as much time to really just have conversations you know like in the old days with Plato and Socrates except you know with women uh also <laughs> and about women so um so this podcast bought that this podcast is really a place for me to have these conversations and and hopefully people who listen to them men women whoever non-binary uh, individual, everyone, everyone um, that enjoys this material is, is welcome to listen to it without feeling the pressure of like, is this too much of a lecture? Or uh, I do feel a little bit of pressure sometimes to bring you evidence because I feel like for those of us that are in academia, it's like so much evidence, so much details. Um, but I'm learning to ease off on that a little bit. I'm learning to trust the fact that I am an expert in my field, that I have been teaching this material for 15 years, and that maybe you don't actually need that much evidence. Um, but, you know, this is my sixth podcast, so uh, bear with me. So uh, I said I wanted to tell you two things. And the second thing, of course, is something about me. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. I have my PhD in uh under the umbrella of humanities, but it's in ancient history. Um, 
I am obsessed with Artemis. She is my, well, and like everything else. Um, she is my motivator. And I could go on telling you stories about the times that she shows up in my life when I'm traveling or when I go to a place and someone will say, oh yeah, well, there was an Artemis temple here or cave here. And I'm like, um, and perhaps I should make a podcast about some of that and some of that traveling and some of that work. Um, yeah, sorry. I hadn't really thought of that. Sorry. Now I'm having all these thoughts. Um, I love to travel and I hope to get paid to travel and do videos and, and, and find places that are sort of out of the way and that maybe no one knew about. Um, and so this podcast is actually a part of that as well, because I get to speak about things that I really enjoy. Um, I'll probably mention this towards the end, but I wrote this book called She Who Hunts on Artemis. Uh, it's really a, a beginning uh, of how incredibly overlooked she is uh, in classics. One of the sources of my frustrations actually has been how incredibly overlooked she is and how little people have written about her within the academic circle, because I know there are a lot of non-academic worker uh, writers that do write and honor her, which is wonderful. Uh, but within the academic sort of field, she's gotten sidelined or marginalized. So I want to bring her back and I want to bring her back a little bit slowly, like introduce people to her more and more. Uh, and then of course, my biggest uh, source of research is Artemis of Ephesus, which is a massive project. I have half of a book on that happening. Um, but it's uh, it's such a massive project. So without further ado, ado um, I would like to start our podcast. Yay. Uh, let's talk about triangles. Okay. So if you're watching me on YouTube, I am going to share my screen. If you're not, that's okay, because I'm going to... Um, I'm going to, perfect, um, discuss and describe as promised, and as we've done in the past, um, all of the, the images and, and things that we're talking about here. So the title of this podcast is Pubic Triangles and Blood Rituals. Um, I don't know if you're kind of getting the hint of where I'm going with this. The icky power of ancient women, and I have icky in the quotation marks because um, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about is icky. Um, is icky today, but it was not icky um, in the past. And I think it has affected our connection to our own bodies and to the world and to the moon and to the cosmos and all those great things. Yeah. So what is this pubic triangle thing? Yeah. So when we think about a triangle, sorry, I'm going to get around my microphone. We think about, you know, a triangle like this, right? Just a standard triangle. Um, and when we talk about shapes and triangles, we always think about uh, the triangle being the most um, powerful shape, the strongest shape. Don't quote me, I'm not a mathematician. Uh, but, you know, we talk about triangles being powerful. We see triangles actually in numerous places. I know one of the things my, my students love to talk about is uh, the triangle with the eye in it in the dollar bill or $100 bill or all the dollar bills. Sorry, my American friends, I haven't looked at an American dollar bill in a long time. Um, but, and you know, so this is sort of that um, symbol of the Illuminati or some 
secret group and perhaps I don't know, but there is no mistake in the fact that it is a triangle and that it is related to power. And there's, there's all, there's all of this mystery around triangles, which is fascinating. And even in the modern world, we continue to be obsessed with triangle shapes or pyramids or things like that. We're going to talk about pyramids in a minute, but I want to take you back to the original source of the triangle. Okay. So something that predates the pyramids, something that predates, you know, secret cults or secret sects or secret, whatever the original triangle was inverted. Yeah. Inverted. So if you're listening upside down, And the original triangle, I've given you here some pictures, um, was the pubic triangle, which is literally the pubis or the female vagina. Or in some cases, some people talk about it's sort of the uterus, you know, Um, either way, it was something that has been so, it has been in engraved in stone, engraved in sculptures, figurines, caves. It shows up so much in prehistoric times. And, and of course, people have mentioned it. Certainly feminist scholars have mentioned it. And certainly if we go all the way back to Maria Gimbutas, for example, who academically has begun to be disregarded, although I hope she's making a comeback. Um, all of these early archaeologist women saw this pubic triangle and understood it as a symbolism of life, of the cosmos, of birth, clearly, sex, fertility, all of these things. And I am fascinated by the fact that we don't talk about this enough. I am fascinated that when we think of triangles, the very first thing that comes to mind is pyramids, even to myself, when I consider myself quite a feminist, uh, perhaps a radical feminist sometimes. And yet this triangle originated, the power of the triangle originated in its inverted shape. At least that's my argument. Um, And there are numerous scholars doing, even today, doing work Uh, For example, there is an image here uh, on the bottom, and this is in Iraq in a stone, just a, uh, yeah, and basically a stone wall. There is an an engraved, just a pubic triangle with a little line. Um, And there's numerous scholars, for example, on ResearchGate and other research places that are doing what they call photographic research in the sense that they're going around the world in different places and taking pictures of these engraved or painted or sculpted, excuse me, triangles. And I'm really fascinated by the work. I'm following their work because, you know, they're putting in literally the work of going to create a collection of all of these pubic triangles and trying to date them, which is a little tougher because some, when something is engraved in stone, that takes a little bit um, more work, but it is still datable, obviously. And I hope that this kind of research and this kind of work on the inverted triangle, the original triangle, is something that will be made more public and perhaps uh, scholars, academic teachers, others will be able to talk about it. I know that sometimes talking about the pubis or the vagina or these kinds of things are um, 
maybe uncomfortable for some, but it's important to know and to remember symbols in their original state because symbols are powerful. You know, uh, I know that we talked about caves last night, last time, and we're going to talk about snakes coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I can't reiterate enough how much subconscious, unconscious, conscious, whatever, however, whichever psychologist you want to use, I like young and the collective subconscious, but how much power symbols have across the world, cross-culturally, cross-temporally, cross everything. And so it's important to understand that symbols are not accidents, that they resonate with us, and that the origins of this particular symbol is part of the divine feminine. Yeah. So let me take you on. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is um, in the caves, the Chauvet caves um, in France. Um, and there is a spectacular, spectacular charcoal drawing, painting that most people call Venus and the sorcerer. Okay, so inside this cave, this is a series of caves. We talked about this a bit last week, but this is a series of caves. But inside this cave is the home of Venus and the sorcerer. And it's hanging and, and this, it's this massive um, piece of art, um, prehistoric art, okay, and drawn in black charcoal. Uh, the pubic triangle can be seen as the lower half of a woman's body intertwined with a bison and a lion. So here in this image, and if, if you're not near a computer, that's okay. I've also put a link here. Um, and if you'd like more links and references, please let me know. I'll drop them in the, in the description of the podcast. But so in describing this piece of prehistoric art, there is a bison on one side. Okay. The head is dark charcoal. The body is outlined. Then there is a pubic triangle, which we, which is referred to as Venus, sort of um, a reference to the prehistoric Venus figurines and all of the female figurines that were found, particularly in this part of Europe. So there is, you can see a very clear, it's not even a triangle, it's very clearly a pubis area. And then on the other side of it is um, a feline, looks like a, looks like a female lion or a lion, some kind of jaguar, some people say. Um, so it's almost like these two animals are on either side of this pubis triangle. It's fascinating because there's so much here visually, okay? The, the, the concept of power, because of course, bisons and lions are these symbols of power, fertility, royalty, monarchy, all of these aspects. And then this pubis triangle, this very clear sort of uterus, vagina space, uh, Venus space to say it nicely, because it seems we have a problem saying vagina um, or hearing it uh, is right in the middle. So there's this sort of central focus. The central focus, of course, is the Venus triangle. Um, the, the Venus triangle is the earliest of the drawing. So we know that this drawing came first. Fascinating, right? The feline on the left and the sorcerer and then other lines of drawing because you know it's outlined drawing uh, are all painted or, or engraved later so this definitely seems like 
a piece of drawing that was initially, of course, made perhaps a female body or perhaps an abstract of a female body or, or a sort of relating to those figurines, the Venus figurines. And then over time, other, in this case, animals were added. However, there are archaeologists that state that maybe the rest of the piece of art has been damaged or covered by these two animals, but the actual Venus triangle remains central to the image. Okay. And they even speculate that the female representation, the, the triangle, may be related directly to the corridor of the chamber, which opens behind this. Okay. So uh, this really takes me back to the tradition. And I really tried to find um, a picture of this as evidence, but I can't seem to find it, although I remember an undergrad seeing these images of red ochre inverted triangles at the mouths of caves or on the sides of caves as you enter. And again, this would be similar to what we talked about um, a couple of weeks ago, which is the idea that caves are the entrance to the womb and the cosmos and all of these things. And so it would make sense that there would be a red ochre triangle, whether it's at the top or at the bottom of the cave. So if any of you ever come across some of these images, please send them to me. Um, I, I, I looked for them. I, I try to Google everything. I could not find any, uh, but I know I've seen them in the past and it would be really fascinating actually to see them even live and take some pictures. So I'd like to add that to my travel and filming list. Um, so, but this here is a great example, I think, of the same tradition or the same idea that pubic triangles were drawn at the mouths of caves or at the entrance of caves. Within this particular cave uh, system in France, there are four other female representations that are just pubic triangles that are in the caves, and they are placed at places that are almost like an entrance to another tunnel, okay? So, or an, adja an adjacent cavity. Okay? So, again, again, we see that the entrance to the cave or the womb or etc., is now directly connected to this pubic triangle. So this pubic triangle is extremely powerful as a symbol, extremely powerful. And it is, from an evolutionary scale, it is ingrained within our own unconscious or subconscious. And I think in part, this is why the triangle fascinates us. Although we'll speak about how it turns into patriarchy or becomes a symbol of patriarchy um, over time. So... I just wanted to refresh your memories and take you back to the fry pans. Uh, just for a brief minute, I just wanted to show you uh, a couple of other fry pan examples that I found. I remember I promised you that there were several. And also, um, there's a lot of work by astronomers, archaeologists, astronomers, um, and other scholars that are looking at fry, these fry pans with the pubic triangle at the bottom um, as calendars or systems of time. So for example, there, I have an image here um, of a fry pan style piece that has just circles, you know, interconnected circles. And often we think about this as water. And so this could be interpreted. And then there, of course, there's a, a, there's a pubic triangle right at the handle of the pan, like we've seen in the one from um, a couple of weeks ago. But what I want to say about this one is that we see this as water and Again, the idea of ocean and of us coming from water and being of water so that the ocean is a kind of cosmic or cosmos, which is fascinating. 
Um, I know most of you know that we know less about the bottom of our oceans than we know about space and galaxies. It's fascinating that human beings want to look up, you know, um, and that we are more interested in what's out there, outside of our world, our Earth, our planet, our organic planet, and we want to look into the stars, but we don't, we are not as interested in looking within. Perhaps that's like a human condition, <laughs> you know. We all want to look outside of ourselves. Um, it's much harder to look within ourselves and analyze ourselves. Um, so really fascinating. Um, but the other thing that's, sorry, that I was connecting to this fry pan is that perhaps these circles are not only water, but also time, right? Because don't forget that ancient people understood that time is circular. Um, we today tend to think that time is linear. So progressively linear, like yesterday was there, today's here, tomorrow. So it's a straight line. Um, but of course, in the ancient world and in in a prehistory and then basically all the time, except the last maybe couple of thousand years, we understood time as circular. So there's an argument that perhaps this, these fry pans that I'm talking about encompass time, which would mean, or would seem to mean that early peoples believed that the womb, which are these fry pans, is not just ocean stars, but even time right? That it's the beginning and end of time. You know, and if you think about sort of, you know, that, bib, that, bib, that biblical idea of in the beginning, there was nothing. And then there was something. And if we think about these fry pans or the womb as time in the beginning, there was just a womb and everything else was birthed through the pubic triangle um, that you see here or that you've seen in other places. So really, really fascinating, um, not conditions, but really fascinating ideas, I think, that are much more complex. You know, we tend to look at something like these fry pans and like some of the statues and sculptures and figurines, and we go, oh, you know, it's sort of um, uh, basic primitive drawing or sculpting. And I think we really do a dishonor to the ancients in doing that, because I think that their consciousness, and again, I'm speculating, of course, is much more abstract, perhaps because they didn't have the tools or, you know, they weren't at a point where they were drawing these very detailed, um, realistic art. You know, we've gone through so many different forms of art. Perhaps their art was much more abstract in nature and more symbolic in nature. In fact, I wouldn't even say perhaps, I would say certainly um, this was the nature of their art. So the way we look at it today, we think it's more lack of skill or lack of tools. But perhaps we should try and open ourselves up to the idea that they all may, they all understood abstract concepts and that they didn't have to add details because number one, abstract was allowed. That is, you were allowed to imagine and feel something from this piece of art. And number two, they understood there was sort of a universal symbolism that they knew others would understand. And perhaps number three, they really didn't care. You know, they just, they drew what they felt, which of course, that's what art is really all about. So 
I find these fry pans and they may come up again. I'm sorry if you were like, oh my God, so many fry pans, but I find them and I'm sorry that I'm calling them fry pans because they actually never find anything on them. Uh, but I find them fascinating as art, you know, and as um, because it, they took a lot of time to make them. And like I said to you last time, there are thousands of them. So these were significant, right? Significant. Okay, moving on. What happens to this inverted triangle? Ah, I would love to call this the original triangle that flips up, okay? So, because, you know, just by saying inverted triangle implies that actually the triangle that faces up is the original, which it is not. Anyways, I could go on a rant about that. Let's not do that. Um, so what happens to the pyramids? What happens to, how does this pubic triangle become inverted? into the point facing up to the sky and the bottom facing the bottom. Well, it's very easy. If we believe that prehistoric people believed that the inverted triangles, the pubic triangle is where life comes through or knowledge comes through or cosmic, etc. Okay. It makes, so if life comes through, I feel like I almost have to draw this. Hold on. Okay, I'm going to share a whiteboard. I'm sorry for those of you who are um, listening, but I'm going to describe what I'm doing. Okay, so if we have an inverted and excuse my art form because I can't, if we have an inverted triangle like this, okay, and life comes from here, wherever this place is, okay, so this is the fry pan model, comes here and comes through here. Okay, so life goes this way comes through the pubis, comes through the vagina, of course, comes through the birth canal, life comes out that way. Okay, so you can imagine it. Then it makes sense. For example, we're going to look at the pyramids next. The pyramids are shaped like this. Well, from a one-sided pyramid, okay? That they believed that life goes this way. So life starts from the bottom or the flat, the I'm trying to use a descriptive language, but life starts from the bottom or the ground which, on which it triangles sitting on and goes up through its most thinnest part okay into the sky so of course that makes sense because if you have the triangle the pubic triangle like this and life comes from the womb out of the body and into the world if you invert that triangle and point it up it makes sense that ancient egyptians believed that you'd be buried somewhere in here let's say and then go up through the top into the sky or into the light or into etc okay so that's my, my whiteboard presentation. <laughs> Sorry about that. So let's move into back to my black, black, bleh, back to um, where we were. Yay. Okay. So let's talk about pyramids. Pyramids is um, what I call the inverted pubic triangle. Okay, so we've seen how they were flipped up. And I think it's very logical to make that connection between the belief of sort of prehistoric or pre-dynastic peoples all over the world and to sort of what became later dynasties building these massive centers 
for death, mummification, immortality, etc. Now, I know that there's, for those who study pyramids and who are fascinated by pyramids, I know that there's some debate about whether or not they were all built for um, burials, but some of them, certainly many of them were built for, for burials. So a pyramid is a polyhedron. So this means it has one base, which is a polygon, and then it has these lateral faces that are triangles that converge at this one single point at the top. So when you stand on like on the face of a pyramid, right, you see it as a triangle, but it's a more, for the sake of it, it's a more complex triangle, let's say. Um, and they're not perfect triangles, obviously. And if you've ever seen sort of a, a drone visual looking down, you could see that there's a flat um, space at the top, sort of a flat square almost at the top. Um, and we see these pyramids actually with the Aztecs, the Mayans, other cultures also have pyramids. And so it becomes a symbol of reaching, reaching high, right? Or reaching up again to the cosmos or the sun. Um, there are some stories, for example, that explain the pyramids that say that the Egyptian sun god, god Ra, who was considered, of course, the father of all the pharaohs, was said to have sat upon a pyramid-shaped mound of the earth, which had emerged from the primordial sea. Again, so many connections with the primordial sea and the divine feminine and the mother source and the Gaia source. And that this pyramid shape is thought to have symbolized the sun's rays. So he's sitting on top of the sun. He's the god of the sun. And if you ever look at sun rays coming down, it's really cool. They do can take these shapes that could, I suppose, make a triangle. Though I've never seen sun rays actually make a triangle. But I guess because they're sort of angular lines, it looks or could refer to the sun. I'm going to tell you that it's just an inverted pubic triangle. <laughs> but Egyptologists may disagree. Um, there's also, of course, the strong uh, belief or study or work that uh, pyramids are shaped like triangles to allow the Pharaoh spirit to climb to the sky okay, uh, on the sun rays. So because it's, tri it's a triangle, when the sun comes down on it, it has these sort of, it almost like embraces the pyramid. And the belief is, of course, that the soul of the pharaoh that's buried at the bottom of the pyramid goes up through the top. Again, that's a very deep connection to the pubic triangle because if life enters in an inverted triangle, life exits in a heads up triangle. Yeah. And so I find that fascinating. I think it's the most authentic connection. I don't know that everyone makes that connection. Um, and I don't know that everyone thinks about the inverted um, pubic triangle when they think about the pyramid, but that's all I think about <laughs> when I see a pyramid. Um, and so again, we have these symbolic, very masculine objects of power because then of course the pyramids and the, the, the dynasties of Egypt influence in the entire world. And all of our ideas of strength and power and the afterlife, I mean, the, the, the Egyptian pyramids are fundamental to our concept of triangles and pyramids. And, and again, that leads me to the representation on the um, US uh, dollar bills of this pyramid with the eye, the all-knowing eye, the third eye, the opening of the eye um, symbol, which is very powerful as well. Again, this idea of 
triangles and this third eye connecting to power and knowledge, particularly sacred knowledge or secret knowledge. And actually next week, when we look at um, snakes, we're going to talk about snakes on the third eye. So there's so much overlapping connections between triangles, between symbols. But I guess my issue is that the inverted triangle, which is the original triangle, doesn't get any credit. And yet it is the very thing, in my opinion, that, it, that inspired the building of the pyramids in these shapes. Um, I don't think there's a better explanation, um, although you could disagree with me if you like, but I don't think that there's a better explanation. I think it is the most logical explanation. Um, and I guess I just want to make sure that we get credit for that. And by we, I mean not just women, but prehistory, you know, prehistory influences history. And it's important that we understand how, how that works. So now we've talked about triangles, inverted and not, but I want to now connect the red ochre art, the red painting, the blood, the life, the death with the triangles. Okay. So most of the triangles that were on these caves that I was telling you guys about, other than the one, of course, in French, which is done in charcoal, but um, just very rudimentary triangles, just painted at the mouths of caves or on the side of caves, was done in red ochre. And when we looked at caves last time, I, I talked a lot about how red ochre was one of the earliest forms of decorative paintings uh, or color of the decorative painting. painting. And red ochre is really interesting because... It, it's, it's said to be made with blood as well. So there's a, a, there's a process to make red ochre. You don't have to put blood in it, but in a um, spiritual or ritual painting or drawing, red ochre often was made with some blood, drops of blood, whether it was from the individual that was painting it or from other individuals that wanted it painting. Blood and red ochre was also often painted on the body. So we have numerous um, examples of tribal culture painting themselves in red ochre, sometimes just for the basic need of, uh, for example, Native Americans or Native Canadians would do it so that they could um, stave off mosquitoes or other bugs. And sometimes for ritualistic purposes, such as anything from life-giving rituals to on any other sort of um, war rituals, not war, that's a, that's a wrong word, but battle rituals and dance rituals and other kinds of things. Anytime that they wanted to exemplify life and death, or mostly life, because sometimes death was often painted as uh, they painted their bodies in white. But anytime that they really wanted to exemplify life, for example, there was this connection to red ochre painting or even blood painting. Um, What's really fascinating, if you know the process of mummification, one of the things that they do in mummification is drain the blood, right? Um, and so, again, you know, of course, mummified bodies, particularly pharaohs, are put in these pyramids. Um, so there's this really interesting and fascinating interplay between blood and triangles. And I want to talk to you about two... Uh, <laughs> Very interesting um, traditions, okay? 
And I've put some links in here in case you, you don't believe me, um, because I think one of them is a little bit interesting. Um, so, of course, the celebration of life, especially for women, comes when you get your period the first time in menstruation and the menstrual cycle. And in, for example, Native tribes, whether it's Native American tribes or some Native Canadian tribes, there is a celebration of the first menstrual cycle, the first menage, like they call it. And often these celebrations were private for women only. So I've, I've placed the link here as reference um, to one of the Native American tribes um, who, um, um, sorry, who, who celebrate or have recorded celebrations of this first menage for women. And um, one of the ways that they did this was they created a special space, a separate space where the young women would go with older women and they would stay there while she was on her period or on her cycle. And they would just talk to her and things like that and teach her about, you know, what it means to be a woman now and all of these kinds of things. And they would celebrate it when her period was over with a dance or a party or et cetera. There are some tribal traditions, for example, where a young woman, after she gets her first period, is then sort of isolated from the men alone with just women, usually a grandmother or an aunt. Um, and she spends a year in this so-called isolation, which is basically just no men, um, learning and learning women's things. So, of course, sex and fertility and how to take care of her menstruation cycle and perhaps other secret female knowledge um, that the aunts or grandmothers may have taken this opportunity to teach her. So usually first, your first period is a celebrated time. And in fact, that tradition, I don't know about you guys, but that tradition passed down, I think, even to this day, like I example, for example, for me, <laughs> when I got my first period, I think I was 12, 13, I don't remember. And my mother was super excited. Like, I don't know. How, I don't know if that makes sense. Not super excited. Like, yeah. Oh my God. You got your period. But she made this event, something that was celebrated. And I remember she bought me this really beautiful ring with a red garnet stone, which I still have. It's one of my favorite rings of, I don't wear too many rings, but it's one of my favorites. And I remember at the time it was super expensive and we didn't have a lot of money being refugees. Um, or hadn't just you know escaped the communist regime, but it was such a celebration and an honor, and it was made by my mother. Of course, we didn't because we were here. We were in Canada um, alone, a very small family who had just escaped. We didn't have I didn't have grandmothers and aunts and uncles around me, so my mother really made something that seemed ugh, like gross and icky and uh, painful, she really made it into something wonderful. And I remember that day because of this act of celebration. And when I speak to some of my other friends and colleagues, some of them within their own traditions continue to celebrate, whether it's privately or a small um, little event, the um their daughter's getting their first period and so as as a result when my daughter got her first period we did a small celebration as well um and we and i bought her a gift as well and i hung out with her um that first week you know we we did all the loving cuddling 
warm bottles, <laughs> you know, all of those kinds of things. And, and we talked about, yeah, we did talk a lot about um, menstruation and pain management and, you know, hygiene and all these kinds of things. So I think that that tradition continues to be passed down among women. Um, and it's a tradition that is almost innate, you know, because it has to deal with, well, the pubic area, blood, um, and this connection to the spiritual world. And I think that we forget that the fact that women bleed, let's say, seven days a week in a month and don't die <laughs> is magical, right? Um, I think we forget that in our modern day lives. I think we, today, under the, 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 the force of patriarchy, it becomes something that's gross and icky and to be hidden. But it's, it is magical. I mean, try cutting yourself and bleeding for seven days and see what that, how that works. Um, and not only that, but it is the sign that now you can create life and you can bring life forth. And again, we have moved away from thinking about those things as fascinating and perhaps magical. And, and I'm using the word magic loosely, but, you know, something outside of just the organic self. You know. The other... Um, so that's one of the celebrations of the first menage, which happens in many tribal cultures and, of course, happened in, in prehistoric tribal cultures as well. But the other one that's really fascinating, and I, I, I just want to give you a, a warning. This one's a little gross. The other one's really fascinating. I've put the link here because I don't know how many of you will believe me. Is um, Actually, will it let me go to this website? Um, is actually a modern-day example of a culture that, of a community and it, um, that to this day celebrate um, moon blood, okay, as something that must be ingested, okay? So <laughs> I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. Uh, but there has been this long connection Okay, long connection between moon blood or period blood and rejuvenation. Okay, and by that I mean rejuvenation of life and rejuvenation of health. So on Vice, okay, I put the link on here. There is an article that talks about a religious sect that drinks period blood, and these are the balls of Bengal. Okay, and they consider menstruation sacred. And they actually put some of the menstrual blood into a concoction that they make um, with um, like milk and spices and some other, you know, some other, uh, for example, they put in camphor, coconut milk, palm sugar, and a little bit of cow's milk. Okay. And then it's drunk by the girl's family and friends. Okay. Now, this is the first period. Of the, of the individual. So that first menage celebration, it's not like every month these people are drinking menstrual blood, um, but the very first menage is celebrated in this way, okay? Um, where the closest uh, people within the family of the girl share in this, but they share it literally. Um, and so I know that some of you are probably like, oh my God, how is that possible? But again, I find it super, super, super fascinating. 
um, I want you to think about this idea of ingesting blood, yeah, as ingesting a source of life. And when we think about it today, of course, we think mostly like vampires, right? Like the first thing when people say to me, oh, you know, and I just saw, I just actually, I was just having a conversation with my friends a couple of days ago that was saying that Megan Fox and her new boyfriend are ingesting each other's blood or some, some, something like that. I, I don't follow Megan Fox very much, but uh, apparently, you know, they cut themselves lightly and share in each other's blood. Um, and then we had this conversation about back in the day, like when I was a kid, how you would cut yourself a little bit. And your friend would cut themselves a little bit and you'd put your hands together, your thumbs together, and you'd become blood brothers or blood sisters. And so we were just kind of laughing about that and remembering that in such an innocent time, you know, before blood became more and more icky. And um, I want you to think about this idea of sharing blood in this way and drinking blood as old as time or as old as humans, let's say, because animals don't really enjoy each other's blood or connect through that way. But I want you to think about it as this most fascinating way, this sort of almost instinctual way of believing that it leads to some kind of a deeper connection. And what I mean by that is like, when I was a kid, no one told me nothing about blood or blood connections, or certainly I didn't know, I didn't know prehistoric history. And yet I had this understanding that if I cut myself and my friend cut themselves and our blood came together, that it was a deeper bond than just a regular friendship. And so this is that unconscious, I think, or subconscious that Jung talks about, the collective unconscious, where there is something intrinsic and instinctual in the understanding that if we connect blood to blood, we become more, or it means more than just um, a friendship you know, and, and no one had to teach it. Like we didn't have to have these lectures on these podcasts on blood and pubic triangles and all these kinds of things. We just knew instinctually that it meant more. And the idea of drinking blood, uh, whether it's menstrual blood or regular blood is of course, as old as time. Not only do we today eat and drink the blood of animals, right? Like people have blood pudding, (laughs) right? Blood pudding or, you know, blood sausage, right? So we are quite used to actually eating and drinking blood. But if you think about Christianity, for example, when you take your wafer, or you take your communion or Eucharist, you are eating and drinking the blood and body of Christ, right? So think about that. There, it, it, this is not just words you say. This is symbolic. You are eating and drinking the blood and body of this individual that you feel is divine, Because your primitive mind connects back to this idea that ingesting blood or ingesting a piece of someone means that you are now ingesting a part of their essence, of their energy, and in the case of Jesus, of their divinity. So it's not that unusual. I mean, okay, it is a bit unusual to drink a young woman's first menage with your milk. That is a bit unusual. But symbolically speaking, it is not that unusual to think about blood ingestions as a deeper connection to the individual or the being from which you are ingesting this blood. So, you know, Megan Fox and her boyfriend, you know, maybe a bit kinky, but this practice is beyond our 
imagination. It's no, sorry, it's beyond beyond our temporal imagination, right? So it's it's something that traces back to our earliest, most primitive instincts, and that is this idea that ingesting the life essence of another individual involves uh, blood, and that you know there's lots of tribal lore where um, people would eat a piece of their enemy. Uh, or drink the blood of their enemy that they respected or that they overcame again to ingest that because they respected that enemy to ingest that power or to ingest. And then of course we have a ton of vampire lore. I mean, as a Romanian, you can imagine. Uh, and I used to teach a course on vampire. And one of the things we used to talk about is the idea of ingesting life through blood. Um, and so vampire lore really comes out again of that idea that vampires need blood to be alive, like to be animated. Yeah. And so again, blood. And the other thing that's really fascinating, sorry, I'm thinking right now, is that there's this lore that when you drink someone's blood, let's say as a vampire or, or whatever, you, uh, you ingest, you can sense their fear, their love, their feelings are in the blood. You know, uh, their knowledge and wisdom is in the blood. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. Um, and so this leads me to um, a conversation, of, of course, about the red tent. Blood, pubic triangle, menage, power, birth, life. Everything, I think, comes together in this concept of the red tent. Now, if you've never read the book, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant, um, you should. It's fantastic. Um it was a book I picked up, I can't remember, in some undergraduate course that I took, and I just could not put it down, okay? Um, and they made a, a documentary about it, uh, The Red Tent, but I did not see it. And uh, so if you've seen it, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm going to look on it, see if it's anywhere on Prime or Amazon or whatever. Um, but so they made a, a not a, sorry, not a documentary, a movie or a film or a series, a mini series. And um, but the book is fascinating and it's the reason why I bring up the red tent is because it literally defines the space in which women would be able to isolate themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, during that time of the month. And so in this case, for example, the tent is red, but the tent didn't have to be red. Uh, this is sort of a visual cue, but it takes us back to that connection between the pubic triangle, blood, life, and the moon cycle. So, you know, I don't know if, I'm sure many of you know that the uh, woman's menstruation or period is also con is called a moon cycle, or used to be called a moon cycle, because it was connected to the moon and to the phases of the moon, the new moon to the full moon, and the uh, 28 days or 30 days of menarche. So women used to have in a tribe or in a community used to have their periods at the same time, which of course, from an evolutionary perspective and a fertility perspective, that makes sense. And even today, I don't know if you guys have heard of the sinking of your periods so that, for example, girls in a sorority or women who live in the same household after a while will sink their periods to each other. So they'll have their periods at the same time, a phenomenon that is unexplained by science. Uh, I mean, they do talk about pheromones and this kind of stuff, um, setting off one, one person has her period and then that pheromones set off another woman. Eh, sure. Okay. Um, but, 
and that could be the case, scientifically speaking. But it's still fascinating that a group of women that perhaps had not grown up together, don't know each other, nothing, move into a space together. And within a few months, their periods have, have um, been synced. This is a very evolutionary, a, a genius evolutionary construction because it allows fertility to happen and, and birthing to happen around the same time. And then the raising of children happens around the same time. So it allows human beings, which, you know, we are tribal, we are not, we, you know, no man is an island. We don't, we can't survive on our own. So because we're a communal species, it allows us to raise our offspring together, to have our offspring together, to share in that responsibility and in, in that support. So the red tent really talks about this practice, right? It's a historical fiction, but it talks about this practice. Of, I mean, Anita Diamant did amazing research for, for this book. Um, fantastic archaeological and anthropological research. Um, but my favorite part is this idea that women were seen as powerful. And, and she's not the only one that mentions it, of course, it comes out of this older tradition, that, that they were so powerful during their menstrual cycle that men actually feared them. So in this red tent, they would sit on like grass. There are also stories that women would go into caves and sit on the ground. Because remember, this is before pads and tampons and, and anything like that, uh, or even napkins. Um, so they would sit on the ground or they would sit on haystacks. Well, if you were in a cave and you sat in the ground, then the idea was that the blood returned to the earth, sort of fertilized the earth. If you were in a tent or in a space and you sat on on haystacks or grass stacks or whatever, then these were removed from the tent daily by young women who didn't have their periods. So because all the women would go into their periods around the same time, imagine the parties they're having in this red tent. Okay. So you have a tribe of people, all the women are, are on their periods. They go into this massive red tent or you know a tent or space or cave, and they basically spend a week in there just chilling not doing anything. Okay. No chores, no nothing. They're just sitting there. Food is brought to them by other women, either older women or younger women who don't have their periods. Cause again, men are too afraid to come around because they were thought to be so powerful that they didn't want that period power <laughs> to affect their energy or their weapons or their thoughts or anything like that. So men were not allowed to come in the caves or in the red tents or even around them or even speak to women at this time when they were having their periods. Now, there may be men listening that are like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it worked for both. It worked for women. It worked for men because it really gave them this time away. And I really, really wish that we continued this practice today. I really, I heard a long time ago, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I heard a long time ago that there were was it in Egypt or Ethiopia? I can't remember that they were building these hotels um, for women to come and spend a week or three, four days um, when they're on their period. And they were kind of like resort hotels. Um, I don't know if that ever went through or if it's something that happens. So please let me know because I really haven't looked that up. But what a fantastic idea, um, especially if it would be supported by the government uh, or your work to be able to take a few days off during that time, but not just take a few days off and sort of be alienated and, and isolated. There were cultures, for example, in the Hindu tradition and in other traditions, there are cultures that saw 
your period as something that is impure. And so you were isolated or segregated because they thought you impure. And so that, that's, that's not the kind of celebration I'm talking about. Um, but the kind that they thought you powerful. And so you willingly and with your other girlfriends or family members isolated yourself into these places and just hung out for the three, four, seven days, whatever it takes. Um, and then afterwards, you would have sort of a ritual bath or a ritual cleansing, not because you're dirty, but again, because you are so powerful during this time that you don't want that power to affect the rest of the tribe, particularly the men in the tribe. And so with patriarchy, that has really, the celebration has really shifted in a negative kind of gross way. And I mean, I don't want to say that period blood is like, oh, yeah, yeah. But we have, we have made this area of the pubic triangle of the bleeding uterus, of the giving of life, you know, even the giving and the birthing of life and all of the organic matter that comes with that. We have made it so icky that it's something that is shameful, embarrassing, um, to be hidden, to be over-scented, over-sprayed, over-cleaned, right? I mean, there are women that, uh, that will wear only tampons because they are too grossed out by their own periods. That's heartbreaking to me, you know? Like, there, this is an event that was celebrated, an event that means you are powerful, an event that says, an event that confirms the fact that you are a life giver, you're a life bearer. So as a result, it should be celebrated. And actually, the very process of this sort of this bleeding for three, four days cleanses the female system, cleanses the body system. So it's a healing process. It's a cleaning process. Our bodies are self-cleaning. It's incredible to me how we continue to propagate this modern I want to say patriarchal, it's not only the men to blame or the men in power to blame. We have created this ugly space. And so I hope that in learning about this history, I hope that in reading maybe something like the red tent or, or, or looking up um, the synchronicity of the moon cycle or thinking about the moon cycle as connected to the female body. Uh, because we as women are connected to the moon in such deeply, and as humans, we are connected to the moon, actually, in such deeply and infallible ways that even in our modern sort of stone jungle, concrete jungle ways, we are still using some of the old instinctual language. Like, for example, when there's a full moon, we, we do that thing where like, let's say you're out and all these things are happening and we go, what's going on today? Is it a full moon tonight? Um, so when we refer to the moon and the new moon and the full moon and all these kinds of things, and sometimes you're in a city, you look up at the full moon and it's massive and glowing, even in the city. Because sometimes when you're up north, it's so bright, it's almost blinding. So I want you to remember that male or female or whatever, we are connected to these 
symbolic aspects, pieces of the world around us in such a way that even if we have forgotten it due to modernity, we still feel it every now and then. And then if we take the time to sort of relearn, do some research, reconnect, we can, can, right? It's still deep within us. And so I hope that that's maybe something (laughs) that you found interesting uh, from today's or something that you've taken away from today's podcast, because I really, one of my goals, I think in this podcast and in writing actually, um, and in traveling is to hope that when I speak to people, I can, and even my students, of course, who have no choice, but to sit in and listen to me. Um, but when I speak to them and when I speak to others that they can really feel or remember this connection to the world around us, to nature, to the moon, to all of these things. And remember that even though we live in organic bodies, of course, these organic bodies are fascinating. And even though we, we are now in a modern world where spirituality and religion and all of these things are complicated and maybe oversaturated and um, there's so much around so much around us that it really, it takes a lot of work to try and take it apart and, and, and consider it and think about it and see, how do I feel about this? Does it connect with me? Do I have a gut feeling or a mind feeling or et cetera, but they're all still there. And so I really hope that you um, can take away from this, that we have power within our bodies and of course, within our minds, but we have power within our bodies that just happens. You know, we don't have to do anything. It just happens. It connects. Um, it operates. And that's really, I think, the most fascinating aspect. Um, particularly of triangles. You know, when you think about triangles, you may not think that they're that exciting, but I hope that today you found them super exciting. Um, so that is the end of my podcast for today. Um, next week, we will talk about snakes. I think I'm going to do two-part snakes because I've made a list of my notes for my podcast. And I think it's going to take me at least two hours to get through some of that snake material. And I probably won't even, I could do a whole course on snakes. It could be six weeks, to be honest. Um, Perhaps I should add it to my course list. Um, Yeah, we could talk about snakes forever. So it might be a two-parter on on snakes, but we're going to look at snakes next week. And we're gonna look at all the different connections. Um, If you don't know, or haven't seen, um, please look up my book, She Who Hunts. It's on Amazon and Kindle and all those things. I'm actually thinking of doing an audiobook version um, and reading it myself. So hopefully, uh, I just don't know about all the um and ums, <laughs> right? In a podcast, you can kind of get away with that sometimes, but in a book, I'm not sure. But I would love to read it and do an audiobook. So um, if you're waiting for that, that's coming up soon. And of course, uh, if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends, um, like it, review it. Apparently the algorithm algorithms work best when um, you get reviews and likes and comments and all that kind of stuff. Also, and as always, please feel free to DM me or send me a message or leave me a comment about anything that you might have questions about or anything that you might want to see coming up in future podcasts and, or just anything at all. If you just want to say, Hey, what's up? Um, please feel free to contact me 
and uh, to share your thoughts and your ideas. All right. So thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next week. Have a great, great weekend.